Hello, welcome to another episode of My Life on the Sask Music D-List. I'm Andrea The Narrative, and I have a super awesome, super special, fantastic, fabulous guest joining me today. And I will let my lovely guest introduce themselves. All right. Uh, hi, I'm Elise Palgi. Uh, I'm a poet and a multidisciplinary theater artist. Uh, also, sometimes Moonlight is a singer and a bass player, uh, though I've never actually been in a band that's lasted longer than like a few gigs. So, and yeah. <laughs> Quite frankly, most of the time. I'm also very much an aficionado of, of uh, karaoke and uh, yeah, just generally enjoy uh, most things related to art and uh, plenty of queer things as well. And I also happen to work at a really awesome bookstore and uh, help run uh, a poetry night called Tonight's Poetry that runs uh, every other Sundays here in Saskatoon. Awesome. Thank you so, so much for coming on. Uh, it's so great to have you aboard. Um, outside of hosting and organizing Tonight's Poetry, I know you happen to also be a very, very talented, well-spoken poet. Uh, thanks. Um, like, yeah, I don't know. I, I try my best. I, uh, I guess, uh, you know, I kind of got started like uh, falling in love with the microphone at tonight's poetry. Uh, like, I used to go as a spectator back in the uh, 2000s and say, like, probably first time I went was probably, oh, geez, like, when I started running in Lydia's pub, uh, probably. From 2010-ish, I'd like to say, 2009-ish. Yeah, uh, yeah, I was dragged up to uh, Poetry Night by my friend uh, Brian Everseeking. Uh, God rest his soul. Uh, but yeah, they uh, introduced me to uh, introduced me to the whole uh, Poetry Slam stage, uh, which I periodically would crash, but I never really uh, got seriously. Uh, into going up there, quite frankly, the thought of going up there uh, terrified me at the time. Uh, and then 2016, I ended up going to a poetry slam that uh, was kind of co-hosted by Out Saskatoon uh, and Tip. And uh, yeah, I had two poems in my pocket and I managed to uh, make it to the second round of the slam, recite both of them. And then things sort of kind of took off from there and started going regular. Probably by the end of 2016, I got booked for my first gigs. I put out my first chapbook, Confessions of a Modern Queer Vietnam, which quite honestly, I think is pretty terrible. It was basically, I did it like photocopier zine style uh, with like, um, yeah, more or less like the most garishly bright, no name yellow cover and uh, the most plain as block font ever and just crammed as much poetry I could in there and yeah and then somehow I ended up uh, competing in the Saskatoon Saskatoon Poetry Slam to the point where I ended up making it on the slam team 
that went to Canadian Festival of Spoken Word in uh, 2017 over in Peterborough, Ontario. Uh, first time going to a national festival. Again, like had serious imposter syndrome, felt totally overwhelmed, but I had a fun time no less, even though I hardly slept at all. And then went on for festival number two uh, over at, uh, over in uh, Guelph in 2018 and uh, did a brief tour of uh, Western Canada at one point, but I've also had the privilege and the honor of uh, doing poetry at multiple pride festivals and uh, yeah, and sort of diversified my range into emceeing and uh, probably one of the things I had the most fun doing was uh, emceeing at Nest Creek in uh, 2019. Um, or no, 2018, my bad. I'm getting my years mixed up now because mm-hmm. unfortunately I'm getting <laughs> Well, <laughs> it's very easy to get confused about time and how much has passed, especially with this post-pandemic world we occupy. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. Uh, definitely feel like, uh, yeah, like everything went on 2020, up until now, I kind of felt blindsided. I was just uh, taken over as uh, program coordinator at uh, TIP and uh, three months in and the whole world shuts down and all of a sudden everything's online or pretty much non-existent. Um, yeah, like, like I used to go to uh, karaoke on a weekly basis, sometimes twice a week, depending on the different venues. I'd go check out for karaoke and then that was gone. I haven't, yeah, done that in two years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like a lot of my favorite pastimes sort of evaporated and just came about the work and try and figure out how to uh, keep the uh, keep the art going in, uh, in this sort of environment uh, while at the same time, like, um, just trying to stay inspired to create while trying to hold things together, which is really, really difficult. For sure. Um, These times have been very trying on all of us creatives and performers and musicians, artists. Um, I'm so grateful for the work that you're doing continually every day in the community and how empowering you are as just someone in the community, in our community, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, I don't know, like, try my best. I'm like about as fragile and messed up as any other human being pretty damn far from perfect and I make a lot of mistakes, but yeah, I try my best. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you're also a bit of a fashionista. I noticed on your Instagrams, you'd post, um, what is it the kids call it? Outfit of the day. Oh, uh, yeah. And that's yeah, kind of yeah. something I'd look forward to and see how you match colors and patterns. Oh, thanks. Yeah. I don't know. I, I just try my best. It's like, it's 
far as fashion goes, I don't know. It's like, in a way, like speaking as someone who's transgender, like I felt like I spent my 30s making up for a lot of lost time <laughs> where I was basically like kind of dressed like a schlub. I don't know, like I hardly, I didn't really get to like present myself in a way that I wanted to back then. Um, like I, I grew up, like I was a teenager in the, in the late nineties and uh, I went to a Catholic school in a small town. Uh, back then it was like, uh, you didn't really talk about being queer. It was very much a taboo subject. Uh, but yeah, I always found like ever since I was a little kid, like I was kind of inspired by fashion and used to like go check out like uh, books on like historical fashion from the library and kind of sketch out ideas and stuff of like outfits I would love to make, love to wear, love to like love to see other people rock. And uh, yeah, I often find myself like taking inspiration from history, from different trends, uh, kind of like vibing with the whole idea that uh, a lot of the stuff that was in when I was a teenager came back in fashion. It's like all of a sudden it's like, oh, hey, I can actually like wear looks that I wanted to wear like, uh, I don't know, 20, 25 years ago, didn't have the guts to. Mm-hmm. And uh, you totally in fashion now. So, yeah. So, yeah. So I find, yeah, I do, I do tend to try my best to keep up with contemporary stuff, but at the same time, it's like, um, yeah. It's uh, a lot of my inspiration comes from history. It comes from uh, the Gothic subculture. Uh, like I've always been a fan of uh, kind of goth, uh, new wave, punk and metal. My favorite musical genres as well as uh, electronic music and rave. Uh, and I've always been like a big fan of the avant-garde, fashion forward looks in those scenes. Exactly. Yeah. Like, uh, no, it's like, I kind of figure just, just by virtue of uh, who and what I am, I already stick out like a sore thumb, so I might as well fucking kick it up to the nines, rock it to the max, and do whatever. Sky's the fucking limit, because... Hell yeah. Yeah, I'm like, fuck. We're only around for how long, right? It's like the kids say, YOLO. Pretty much. Ready to say that one? Uh, no, that, that abbreviation. I feel like it's something sort of like kind of it's like brought up by the sort of the younger half of the millennial gen, uh, kind of upper half of the gen of Gen Z, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was like kind of born like right at the beginning of the millennials or end of Generation X, depending on what stupid social scientist or marketing professional you you uh, ask. Uh, I always kind of found it funny that uh, some reason, uh, interesting fact, the boom, baby boomer generation, 20 years long. Generation X, 15 years. Millennial, 20 years. Gen Z, 20 years, I guess. But yeah. So it's like kind of like, uh, I don't know, it's like kind of just that whole weird, like, how do you uh, explain how the generations work type thing? Kind of just... uh, 
inspired me to write a poem, actually. <laughs> like, uh, it kind of came from, uh, yeah, I call it the Y Water Generation, which I kind of uh, stole from uh, Christian Slater in uh, the movie Pump Up the Volume, uh, where he portrays this uh, kind of a, this really dorky teenager who uh, moves from like uh, New York to uh, some small, like suburban community in Arizona, I guess. So guessing greater phoenix or something but uh yeah he ends up uh basically he's told dork has no friends but uh his parents bought him a ham radio set so he could communicate with, communicate with his friends so he ends up starting a pirate radio station and he has this like alter ego called happy harry Hardon, which ironically same initials as the high school he's going to like <laughs> and uh yeah just like does a radio program where he's like trashing his high school and like kind of shooting from the hip, telling him what it is, being as lewd and raunchy as possible. And yeah, he's like, yeah. And he, could, he basically said, yeah, I'm part of the Y Bonner generation too. Like when he was like trying to talk a kid out of committing suicide. And it's like, and it's like, yeah, the Y Bonner generation, Y Bonner, why should we get, a, why should we give a shit? Like same with like the speech and uh, fight club of like, basically like, I don't know, the take on, uh, masculinity in the late 90s and how no great war no great depression yada 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 like that sort of shit it's like i don't know i just feel like uh we've almost we're almost like kind of like even since i was like 12 years old and i was watching on the news uh about people protesting clear cutting over clear cutting over and clacking sound uh, and like watching the nature of things watching the state of the earth deteriorate uh like pretty much since childhood and uh, is kind of always feeling this doomsday apocalyptic vibes. Like what do we have to look, what do we have to look forward to? Uh, we gonna fight, have a revolution. What's going to happen? Like, Oh yeah. Well, and then, yeah. Then, yeah. I guess we get the apocalyptic vibes happening with the vials opening up and the plague coming down upon us and then all kinds of conspiracy nonsense and people just going batshit crazy like yeah (laughs) so if anything we should be going crazy with our fashion and wear like the Mad Max outfits well well I don't know it's like (laughs) I guess I could yeah but Rock the post-apocalyptic studded letter. I even got gas mask. Like, like heck, like uh, go full on doomsday prepper uh, tech wear chic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If only winter wasn't a thing, then you could wear yeah. the Mad Max garb every day. But. <laughs> Well, I don't know. It's like kind of, I guess, seasonally appropriate to gear in Australia where they don't experience winter. I still remember talking to this Australian exchange student in September and he was bitching about the weather being winter weather. And it's like, dude, okay, how long have you been in Canada first? And it's like, this ain't winter. Yeah, just wait till January. You'll hate it. <laughs> Exactly. Like it's just beginning to be spring and or summer now. So Yeah. Yeah, it's always that way here, kind of like 
kind of like, I don't know, I had an American friend refer to it as instant summer because it just instantly got freaking like just raging hot that year. I think it was like early May. But yeah, it's pretty much how, pretty much uh, how the weather seems to work here. We get this short, hot summer and then come back to cold and miserable for the next like five months. (laughs) Zoom's asking me to upgrade for some reason. Mm -hmm. It might cut us off. Yeah, I see the timer. Uh, um, yeah. A pro kit. <laughs> we'll just have to reconnect or something. Who knows? Yeah, yeah sounds good. And sorry if I'm going off on some crazy, crazy tangents. And no, like, it's good. I love yeah. it. Yeah. No, no. Um. But yeah. I can't imagine not experiencing winter. There's something about the renewal once winter ends and I don't know. And that whole like being inside, being able to have an excuse to not leave the house and to create, Mm -hmm. it just lends itself to why there's so many talented, brilliant creators of music, poetry, art, and the like here in Saskatchewan. Indeed, indeed. There is a very, very large wealth of creative people in this province. Like, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's something you said about the warmth of a kitchen jam the dead of winter too so totally yeah or like little house concerts Mm -hmm. pack like insert how many people into one tiny place oh yeah yeah there's yeah uh, yeah if there's one thing i miss uh like the last two years it's been uh like geez going like basically ending up with like 30 people and not packed into a tiny living room watching like a band somehow cram all their, like a four piece or five piece band somehow cram all their gear into that little space. (laughs) Like uh, one place I really miss for that is uh, Witch Mansion. Uh, Yeah. Uh, Like one of my friends, uh, Duncan Picard, who uh, was like uh, from the, uh, Sound and Silence Collective here in Saskatoon and uh, co-runs uh, Gray, Gray. Gray Records uh, with Lenore. Ugh, yeah, like he uh, he's done a lot of good work for the local music scene over the years and definitely like uh, in, like Witch Mansion and his previous incarnation, Barf House. Barf hosted, House. Hosted, <laughs> yeah, hosted some of the best house shows ever in the city in like probably about a good like five year span there. Like I had a blast every time I went to uh, went to one of their house shows. Uh, like saw so many like really talented like bands of all sorts of diverse stripes, everything from folk to punk to like new wavy type stuff to gothy stuff to like 
really super talented uh, techno DJs, uh, DJs that were throwing down like uh, real like funky house uh, party vibes and then people doing like antithesis of it, doing like drone shows, like stuff that you're not going to like necessarily see at a get booked at a big club or anything, but like, but still it's like Duncan somehow had talent for uh, getting these people in. And I still say to the day, this day, one of the things I'm most thankful for was uh, it was back in uh, 2018. There was a theater uh, program I wanted to, a friend suggested I attend called uh, One Yellow Rabbit Summer Lab Intensive, which was essentially, uh, I believe it was uh, a master class in theater that took place over a month in Calgary. And uh, yeah, it was like a couple thousand bucks and uh, I didn't have, I was quite frankly, dirt poor and broke. And yeah, so I had no, I did not have the means. Um, like I was basically struggling to uh, survive that part. I was at that point, I was unemployed. I was kind of, yeah, scraping by on uh, social assistance and uh, like making a little bit here and there from uh, doing various gigs, doing poetry and whatnot, uh, selling zines. But yeah, I wasn't making enough to live back then. And uh, uh, Duncan and crew, they uh, basically booked a house show, uh, like drew a party for me and had folks contribute towards uh, my tuition from One Yellow Rabbit. So I was actually able to attend the theater program and came back rejuvenated, folks ideas, uh, ended up thankfully getting a job like not long after I got, I got back from Calgary too. Like, so, and I felt like I, I definitely learned a lot as an artist from One Yellow Rabbit. Um, like basically like uh, doing intensive classes and various theater techniques, uh, like, and stuff based in movement, stuff based in Dadaism, um, and having to like craft my own like 10 minute performance art piece, which I kind of, yeah, sort of uh, went through the lines of sort of, uh, well, kind of the objectification of trans bodies, but also like, got into queer and kink and sexual empowerment, which is something I shied away from previously in art. And I don't think I'll ever replicate the piece, but still I'm thankful I had the opportunity to uh, create something like that. <laughs> so uh, I don't know if I'd do the same thing again, but still I had fun. <laughs> totally. And yeah. having that visibility and having that opportunity is great. And that would have been before uh, a lot of trans issues went mainstream. I feel sometime around when Orange is the New Black came out, that's when people kind of started going, oh yeah, trans issues, I should really care about that. Yeah. I don't know, that just seems like mm -hmm. when it entered the collective yeah, it was that Mainstream. Time Magazine. The Time Magazine, yeah, when Laverne Cox is on the Time Magazine cover and uh, they got like trans tipping point on there when the tabloids are all up on uh, the transition of Caitlyn Jenner who uh, 
It's hardly representative of the community itself. And um, yeah, I've got, I don't have much nice to say about it. So I'm just going to loop out of the conversation entirely. Well, uh, but yeah, but as far as like having like actual trans representation in media, that started to become a thing more of us started fighting for proper representation. Cause quite frankly, uh, like what happened in uh, like, especially like in film and television in the nineties, eighties and nineties, how we were represented previously in the past, uh, generally portrayed by cis- cisgender actors. Um, and mm-hmm. also like, usually in a negative or a pitiful way. Like the Hayes Code was really big in effect till quite recently. I think mm-hmm. it, I think that's what it's called. The Hayes Code. Yeah, mm-hmm. it was basically quash, squashing queer storylines and mm-hmm. basically making mm-hmm. them less than instead of greater than and equal okay i think we're gonna lose video in less than a minute you want to yeah start again yeah and then we'll jump back in after it does its thing okay all right see you in a bit yep all right here we go um, so yeah, no, no, just, yeah, thinking the whole thing about the, the Hayes Code, like, uh, yeah, like pretty much, yeah, any portrayal of transgender folks in media was generally negative, um, kind of fall, fell into a few tropes. Uh, usually it was the, uh, trope of, uh, the victim being pathetic or being pathetic, uh, the butt end of the joke, like example, crocodile knee or, um, or of course the, um, the predator trope, uh, given to us by sounds of the lambs. Uh, like, yeah, it wasn't exactly, wasn't exactly the, the kind of thing. So growing up, uh, well, closet queer in the nineties. Uh, yeah. Seeing, yeah. seeing how trans people are portrayed in media, it was quite frankly terrible, terrible and scarring. And you kept your fucking mouth shut about that stuff. Like, like the only like actual like real trans people you would see in media would be like um, on like trash talk TV shows like Jerry Springer, and they often be portrayed as being deceptive by the host or somewhat problematic individuals and then of course you get the on-air like chair brawl or whatever yeah yeah basically the the whole circus thing we're all freaks uh and then uh yeah so it was just like yeah so it was terrible and then i found like it was sort of awakening after like the sort of kind of in the tens like even the odds, it was starting to get a little bit better, but uh, by like the 2010s, like actually when I, when I started transitioning like 2012, like it seemed like things were getting better. Um, yeah, like I said, like the transgender tipping point in 2015 and then, uh, but then 2016, you have the resurgence of uh, the reactionary right and um, yeah, a president getting elected in the States who is like, 
definitively anti-trans, like literally tweeting from his toilet that uh, trans people are not fit to serve in the military, for example, like, uh, and heaven forbid, like, um, in the United States is all the all the states that state legislatures controlled by Republicans trying to pass laws and successfully some of them successfully passing laws, um, basically uh, trying to uh, prohibit uh, trans kids uh, from getting any sort of uh, medical help, uh, even mental health help. Uh, having like those who are like not up to their parents having high privacy uh, not respected, uh, teachers not being able to uh, teach younger folks about LGBT things because it's considered adults or, and against the morals of uh, basically uh, a state that considers itself to be uh, a bastion of religious morality, whatever that is, uh, whatever interpretation of uh, Christianity they set forth, which is more or less a dominionist, fundamentalist interpretation that is very reactionary and very definitively anti-LGBTQ. Um, and also deep roots in racism. Like, so we were like, so yeah, we've been experiencing a resurgence of uh, that sort of element of the right wing since about 2016. It's kind of funny. It's like, finally it feels like transgender people made some gains and then all of a sudden it's like, Trump gets elected, everybody's going crazy. Um, and yeah, and people are actively working against you. And then I hear from like uh, siblings in the UK about uh, like basically a like large movement amongst uh, like uh, they call themselves gender, gender criticals now. Uh, but generally speaking, uh, they also used to be known as like transphobic uh, or trans exclusionary radical feminism. Uh, gained a lot of political traction in the United Kingdom and it's incredibly hard to access healthcare even as an adult. Like if you're on the National Health Service, you're waiting years just to receive the most basic of treatment. And like looking back as someone who grew up where it was like so, so taboo to talk about being trans, like just to see this whole fundamental rollback of everything is mm-hmm. quite frankly scares the shit out of me. Um, like uh, just seeing what's going on like and like active like behavior by the radical right in terms of like just how almost like borderline genocidal they've become and and also how we treat it as some sort of new thing that we somehow sprung up out of the middle of nowhere in like I guess in the last decade or two when reality is like um, there's trans children now. I was a trans child. I just didn't, re- I just couldn't talk about it. And so were a lot of ones and generations pre- preceding Previous. me. Like, yeah, previous generations. They, yeah, they couldn't talk about that shit. They lived in the closet. Most people lived in the closet. Like, uh, like you, 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 like occasionally hear about like early, like early uh, pioneers in the community. Like, uh, like kind of made things easier for us uh, who fought hard folks like uh, Sylvia Rivera and Marsh P. Johnson. Uh, yeah. And of course, like uh, in the music realm, uh, Wendy Carlos, like one of the greatest electronic music composers of all time. And yeah, she's the one who's scored, like she scored clockwork orange, like uh, 
like I'd say between her and like uh, other rap producers like mm-hmm. Giorgio Moroder, like they influence uh, electronic music a lot. Um, but yeah, so and it's just like, and you can go like further back and uh, like a lot of my own like performance art is very much inspired by the cabaret. Um, like, um, I was fortunate enough to study burlesque under the tutelage of headmistress uh, Cherry Popper of the Rosebud Burlesque Club, who, uh, yeah, Rosebuds are forever my family. And I am very thankful that it was a very welcoming and inclusive environment, uh, which I got to explore the arts of dance and striptease. And uh, like, also like learning a lot about character development, crafting personas, mm-hmm. and uh, burlesque has its origins in the cabaret, like going back to like the prohibition era in the 20s. And in the 1920s, like uh, there was uh, the Berlin cabaret scene in, in Germany. Uh, and uh, yeah, and there was a lot, a lot of people who were like very open about uh, gender and sexual di- diversity back then. Like, it was not treated as the biggest fucking taboo thing. Like, uh, like you go back then and you have like, uh, like some of the pioneers in trans healthcare, uh, Dr. Magnus Hirschfelter being one of them, uh, who was actively uh, helping uh, transgender people uh, achieve transition and mm-hmm. did a lot of very important research, which was destroyed by the National Socialists in, uh, when they took power in 1936, right? Like the, mm-hmm. one of the most fam- one of the most famous instances of book pictures of a book burning comes from uh, yeah, yeah. it was the uh, essay burning the contents of the library of the Gender and Sex Sexual Institute of Berlin. <laughs> that sounds about right. Yeah, it wasn't until someone decided mm-hmm. collectively yeah. to pick out the different, the special, and the great. Like so yeah. many artists, scholars, creators yeah. happen to be in the queer community. Yeah, yeah. Living on the fringes of society outside the norm. Um, exactly. Yeah. And yeah, if you don't fit into a specific box, uh, you end up becoming a target. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's a lot of small-minded people out there who uh, they mean to harm people. Very they much. React, yeah. They react out of fear to that which they uh, have no comprehension of and are easily led to do so. Yeah. Like, I don't know. I think uh, of all the things, like, one of the greatest... Uh, like one of the greatest social ills of any time, quite frankly, is ignorance. The exact ignorance that feels fear and hatred of that which you do not understand. And it's especially sad when uh, people like proclaim themselves to be part of uh, a religious movement that was supposed to be about uh, love and kindness and compassion and they just turn it upside their, turn that upside the head and use it as a vehicle for their, for their hatred. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
And then if anything, I'd like to challenge the <sighs> the status quo. Yeah. Like in the city and in like the greater like fill in the blank mm -hmm. collective, I guess. Um, there happens to be a lot of movements in uh, the insert the blank post post new wave feminism, but the feminist community tends to be very divided on trans mm -hmm. issues, which I don't know. It, it strikes me as very much for regression. Mm -hmm. Like intersectional feminism is more on the inclusive side. Yeah, yeah. Versus second wave feminism. Exactly. Mm -hmm. um, I tend to be in the inclusionary group because really people are people. Mm -hmm. And If you're excluding trans people from feminism, you're excluding a large portion of people who are amazing and who yeah. are fighting for the same things mm -hmm. as mainstream feminism. Yeah. Yeah, what I find alarming right now is uh, how, uh, like, uh, how the right to bodily autonomy, how the right to choose is uh, under threat uh, in the United States right now. And to a degree, it's always been uh, here as well, uh, how the anti-abortion movement uh, gained a lot of traction with the U.S. Supreme Court and how it looks like uh, that Roe v. Wade's about to be overturned. Uh, it's like kind of going hand in hand with like attacks on uh, transgender folks uh, in the states. The same states are going after, uh, going, targeting uh, women who need, uh, who need abortions. Exactly. They're attacking bodily autonomy on so many levels. And, and I've always been like absolutely 100% for uh, individual bodily autonomy. Um, and that's something I will fight for, quite frankly, till I'm in the ground. <laughs> like, I definitely agree with you. It's scary times. Yeah. And like about a year and a half ago or so, the Saskatchewan University pro-lifers started following me on Instagram and they're like, oh, we think you could join our No, <laughs> I told them, uh, yeah, no, I believe that, you know, your body, your choice. And I was like, what about this circumstance and that circumstance? And they're like, yeah, but you're still murdering lives. No, you're helping prevent 
more serious harm down the line by providing that healthcare service yeah. by making it um, not accessible to people. You're forcing unsafe, unsterile, like back alley yeah. procedures that are done dangerously where you risk so many negative complications. Exactly. And when they start talking about like late-term late abortions, uh, especially, and like you see abortion procedures getting banned, like uh, for like ecotopic pregnancies uh, when, and like, terms of where the fetus is not viable, it's going in the fallopian tube, that baby develops, it's gonna kill the mom. Exactly. Yeah, it's like, it's just a straight up violation of uh, that woman, that person's bodily autonomy. Like, and it's quite frankly inexcusable that uh, they would condemn, condemn those women to death. Exactly, and not only that, you look at, um sexual abuse survivors mm-hmm. and you look at incest and you look at all of these many different factors that yeah. come into play and it's like okay really you expect x individual who is a sexual abuse survivor of a close relative to have that um, deformed fetus due to genetic whatever that are involved when incest happens. Like, that's so straight up ass backwards. Yeah. ridiculous and fucking awful yeah it's horrible they're like yeah like not only does she carry the uh like the uh trauma of being a survivor of uh sexual abuse but having to uh, carry the child of their abuser on top of that exactly excusable no no woman should be forced to carry a unwanted pregnancy to term like, and I don't see uh, the people who oppose abortion uh, giving a damn about the living. Like, I don't see them bucking up to take care of unwanted children. Like, there's, quite frankly, like thousands and thousands of kids languishing in the foster care system, living in group homes. Yeah. Being them removed from removed from their families, uh, you know, the families don't have the resources to look after them. Or, quite frankly, especially here, out of sheer racism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, I don't see uh, these people picketing outside of hospitals and abortion clinics stepping up to raise those kids. They don't care. And they call themselves pro-life in the U.S. And a lot of them are very much pro-gun. Like, they behave like a death cult. Exactly. Yeah. 
And like, if you think about it, most of the guns in America are handguns, which I equate with people hunting guns, because really, Mm -hmm. what are you hunting with a handgun? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I'm thankful in a country with uh, sensible gun laws. Like, you can get a handgun in this country, but uh, there are limitations to when and where you can use it. And you have to take a safety exam and pass a police check to get one. Like, there are rules here. And I don't see, like, there's not a lot of gun crime in this country because of that. But yeah, if you watch Bowling for Columbine and various other American-based documentaries, they're Mm. basically like giving guns away at banks and other bullshit things. And it's like, here, this is smart. We'll give you a gun. (laughs) Oh, God. That was probably one of the funniest moments of that movie. Uh, It's also, yeah, unfortunately, uh, well, like... uh, what quite frankly was uh, a great tragedy of the late 90s, uh, which I went to high school during that time. I, I remember what happened uh, 420, on 420-1999, like the Columbine massacre. And now it's like, you take a look at the frequency of mass shootings now versus then, it's like, God, like some folks were gunned down Go down at a grocery store in Buffalo like a few days ago. Their crime, they were black. Um, and yeah, and what happened was uh, basically a 18 year old kid who got radical, ra- radicalized by white supremacists. And I'm sure his parents played a part in his upbringing. He probably was the reason why he was with like, guns. Uh, and like, I don't know, like, people are, like, celebrating him, the media's downplaying it, they claim some bullshit about mental health, but clearly that's a country with its own set of domestic terrorism problems. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like, for a while there, it was, like, one or two mass shooting events a week, and that was basically up until the world shut down for pandemic mode. Mm-hmm. And now that things are opening up again, yeah. the mass violent events are definitely on the rise. Mm-hmm. Totally. And I often worry about like uh, how much that ideology will take root here. Like, even though I'm less worried about, uh, randomly getting shot in the street in this country. Like, though, I've kind of ridden off going back to the States. Uh, it's a bad idea. Definitely. <laughs> yeah. It's like, yeah, last time I visited, it was in 2011, uh, like right before I came out as trans. So, yeah, and then kind of just seeing the way politics turned there, uh, like, just pivoted so far to the right, they pretty much pulled out the stops, threw the overtune window right out the window. Uh, yeah, I just don't really have much desire to go visit the United States anytime soon. Neither do I. Uh, 
it's kind of a nightmare country. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, especially if you're black, brown, queer. <laughs> yeah. Or all of the above. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, you know, I think, yeah. Like, it's always the trap of that same ideology taking root here. And even it's prevalent in our society, too. Maybe not as pronounced, but it's there. That's something that should be challenged constantly and consistently. I definitely agree with you. Yeah. It's always kind of been a part of the root of my own artistic practice is to uh, challenge white supremacy, challenge uh, homophobia and transphobia. Like, yeah, like if we're able to like move forward as a society, like those ideas must be challenged and consigned to the dustbin of history. Otherwise, I don't see us getting very far. Like, uh, like uh, we've talked about Star Trek before. I'm a big fan of that and sort of that utopian uh, ideal of uh, post post scarcity scarcity society where humanity's put aside all of its differences and actually progress forward and dedicate ourselves to uh, better bettering ourselves as a species um, as opposed to uh, I don't know violently competing for resources mm-hmm. and he who hoards is usually he he who hoards the biggest pile of gold wins wins the game of civilization again uh, I guess well uh, well we're watching uh, basically the sixth mass extinction take place and uh, the complete destruction of our own planet's biosphere. Like, yeah, like, it seems pretty grim right now. Uh, <laughs> like, I like to try and keep a glimmer of hope going, but still, it's troubling times. And, yeah, I don't know. It's just things I worry about. Totally. Yeah. I think. The only thing that'll really fix it is if aliens come and we're like all suddenly afraid of the aliens. Mm-hmm. And then. Oh, yeah. Maybe. No, it depends. depends if it's like, oh, now are we looking at benevolent ones like the Vulcans from Star Trek First Contact? Or are we looking at an evil invasion force that we got to unite as humanity to fight against? Like, I don't know. There's like multiple scenarios done in science fiction. I've always been a huge science fiction fan. So like, it's always interesting to see which one, uh, which one takes root, which one is the more popular idea. But yeah, I don't know. Hopefully, hopefully the aliens that come out of the Nelvoin kind, if they do show up, um, though, I kind of hope we like be able to, you know, work out, work out shit ourselves peacefully instead of, uh, constantly fighting each other uh, and watching the uh, doomsday clock uh, tick ever forward towards midnight. Mm-hmm. I think we're at 100 seconds now. Yeah. 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 Although if they were the more hostile beings, 
it would force humanity to come together to maybe yeah. um, expel said hostiles. Yeah. Then again, who really knows? Who knows? This, this scenario has been played out in fiction multiple, <laughs> from multiple sources for many years. It also plays into speciesism, too. Like, mm -hmm. I genuinely believe that Sasquatch, or Bigfoot, as they call it, is a real um, cryptoid, and they are out there, but I believe that they're intelligent and are actively staying away from people because, well, people are no, terrible. I consider no one is actually like uh, verified uh, that Bigfoot's exist. It's like, I uh, don't know, it actually exists. Like, I guess it's Bigfoot's good at keeping out of sight, but you never know. Uh, like, we are definitely uh, creatures of myth. Uh, like, like uh, we, uh, like we see some sort of phenomena we can't explain. We make up a story to explain it. That's how we got religion. <laughs> that's where that's where gods came from. Yeah. So true. And there are many, and there are many gods, many interpretations of such, and a lot of blood stories that people see as absolute truths are often uh, retellings of previous stories from different civilizations and uh, quite frankly we've been doing that since we were uh, hunter-gatherers sitting around uh, sitting around the first fires uh, telling stories and living in caves or most uh, primitive and rudimentary of shelters that we could build uh, while following uh, following uh, herds of large animals uh, to use for uh, use sources of food so yeah I think the oldest, uh, the oldest known temple on this planet. Uh, yeah, I believe. Uh, forgive me if I get the pronunciation wrong, but uh, it's over in Turkey. It's uh, called Gobekli Tepe. Um, yeah, yeah. Site dates back uh, as far as like 9,000 BC. Um, and yeah, it's mostly like depictions and carvings of stone carvings of various uh, animal and uh, human figures. Uh, it's yeah, kind of like the evidence of like some of like probably the world's oldest temple that we know of. Um, so the idea of religion predates agriculture. <laughs> like, so yeah, we always have a sort of an affinity for the supernatural that which we cannot explain story up for exactly yeah so uh, now I'm kind of hoping maybe we move past the point where we uh, uh, take those stories that uh, previous generations have told as uh, universal divine truths especially if uh, you can't verify them with actual evidence but uh, no call me a skeptic or what have you. Like, like I, I was raised evangelical Mennonite, so mm -hmm. yeah, I've had a very deeply religious upbringing, so. 
So have I. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah we have the same. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure which, uh, just out of curiosity, like what faith were you, community were you raised in? Um, well, we started Lutheran. Then we went to Methodist church and then we kept going and eventually my sister and I went to a private Christian high school and that was a time and a half. I bet. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I think I had a bad enough going to Catholic. Just my grandmother was Catholic. And, uh, I don't know. It was like, I guess, uh, the perception that some of the Catholic school was better than the public school. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Like, I went to a private Christian school for, like, kindergarten. But, uh, yeah. My, I think it was an argument between my parents, uh, mostly my dad, complaining about the price of tuition compared to putting me in Catholic school. So they put me in Catholic school. <laughs> but yeah mm-hmm. yeah yeah but no no it's like yeah I'd like both the catholic and protestant uh, traditions sort of force fed to me as a as a child and yeah that kind of you know got my start with the illustrated book of bible stories and then i actually read the bible and i think that's about when i uh started questioning everything <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of crazy stuff in that bible yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, like, you know, also I got into, like, I was a fan of Star Trek when I was a kid. I got into astronomy and, uh, like, I was, like, kind of like a big NASA fan, all that sort of stuff. Like, I started reading science books and, of course, science contradicted all the, all the faith-based stuff. And it was just like, whoa. Yep. And it's like, I don't know, it's like if anything, uh, People like Isaac Asimov and Steve Hawking told me, taught me how to like, uh, I don't know, look at things through a bit more of a critical and objective lens and also kind of enter the understanding of uh, how, when, yeah, when these like, like when these stories were told like X thousands of years ago, our understanding of, the universe and our surroundings was pretty rudimentary compared to what we know now. And the fact that people cling on to uh, that more rudimentary understanding, uh, quite frankly, is all the evidence in front of them. Thank you again for coming on. I'm so appreciative. Yeah, no, I appreciate you having me. Uh, Yeah. That's definitely good. Um. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of uh, sort of around the final thoughts. Uh, Pride's coming up next month. It's almost June, and uh, yeah, I have the honor. Yeah, I'm humbly honored to be curating uh, the West Front Pride Memorial Latte for the third year in a row, and finally this time back to being an in-person event over at Francis Morrison Public Library. Um, on uh, yeah, Monday, uh, June thirteenth. Uh, still getting the artists together, but I have a pretty exciting lineup in it, lineup uh, planned for this event. And yeah, hope 
uh, hope a lot, hopefully plenty of people can uh, make it out to it. Right? And uh, yeah, do West proud. I'm hoping I can make it out because yeah, it's, it's one of my favorite events and yeah. it helps me remember Wes and how great he was and how hard he fought for our community and damn right yeah I'm glad we talked about Wes about about Star Trek because Wes was a huge fan of Star Trek and I was actually thinking of wearing a Starfleet uniform for for hosting this year <laughs> yeah I don't know Very and much. gold or red Science blue nice yeah yeah Always oh, my favorite color. Spock was about logic. And the most important thing, the Vulcan philosophy, infinite diversity and infinite combinations. Yes. And that's, and what, that's what pride is about. Live long and prosper, my friend. Live long and prosper to all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm.